responsible parents issue an innumerable array of commands to their children over the years. Come here. Stay away from there. Put your toys away when you are done playing with them. Look at me when I talk to you. Cover your mouth when you cough. As we say in our home, keep your finger out of your nose and keep your finger out of your brother's nose. Turn off the lights when you leave a room. Do not use that word. Many, many commands are issued by parents who love their children. But these commands are not all created equal. Some are obviously weightier, more important than others. Do not lie is much weightier than do not whine. Cover your mouth when you cough does not begin to compare with the significance of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Keep your elbows off the dinner table does not rank with never marry an unbeliever or a Christian unwilling to orient his or her life to fulfill God's creative design within marriage. Do not put money in your mouth is not nearly as weighty as systematically put money in the bank to save for college. Of the many commands responsible, loving parents issue day after day, there are obviously some commands that are weightier than others and summarize a whole host of less significant commands. And the maturity of a child is often demonstrated by his or her ability to discern those differences between the weighty command and the lesser command. And I think that that is very much the way that it is with our Heavenly Father as well. God's Word is filled with commands. And every one of those commands that apply to us are of utmost importance and are to be obeyed with reverent submission. However, as we mature in our relationship with the Lord, as we grow in our faith, we grow closer to Him and we understand God's heart, we realize that some commands are weightier than others. How crushed I would be as a father if one of my children religiously followed my command never to incur debt with a credit card, only to violate my command never to commit adultery. On the one, given the circumstances, we can overlook. On the other, there are no circumstances that permit us to overlook it. And I think God experiences that kind of grief sometimes with his people, because sometimes his children scrupulously obey lighter laws while violating weightier ones. I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 1 in verse 10. Weightier commands left aside while lighter ones are religiously followed. Isaiah takes up this burden of the Lord as he addresses the people of Israel. Isaiah 1 and verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is an address to Israel, and that is not a compliment. He says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. 
Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. I'd like us to keep that phrase in mind. Stop doing wrong. Who told Israel to bring these sacrifices? Who told Israel to observe these new moon festivals and appointed feasts? Who commanded Israel to do these things? God, Jehovah. He says, I hate your sacrifices. Because there was a weightier command that Israel had left aside to follow with religious scrupulosity the lighter laws. God is not unconcerned with these lighter laws. He issues these commands for a very specific reason, but he wants us to major on the majors. We need to discern the weightier commands of God's word and to major on obedience to those commands. And that has been much of the inspiration for the series of sermons that I bring to close this morning on biblical love. God wants us to major on love. His commands that we love are weighty commands. And so as we conclude this series, I think it's appropriate to turn back to Matthew and to touch on a passage that we've used a couple of times through the series by way of cross-reference, and to land hard on this point today. I'd like us to hear one last word in this series on the emphasis that Jesus places upon love. To the mind of God, to the mind of Jesus, in the mind of the Spirit of God, love matters. Let's trace out the context here. I think it is helpful to us to find that what Jesus says about love comes in the midst of great turmoil. Go in your mind's eye back to the bustling city of Jerusalem on Tuesday of Passover week. On Friday of this week, Jesus will be impaled on a Roman stake. He knows that his enemies are seeking to destroy him, and he knows that Friday is the day. The atmosphere is charged with tension. A few days earlier, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem. You can notice that there at the first part of chapter 21. Ridden into Jerusalem in perfect fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He's hailed as the Messiah by the cheering crowds. Now, Jesus' enemies, primarily the religious establishment in Israel, are desperately striving to stop Jesus. Some of these leaders start today by challenging Jesus' authority. If you'll go to chapter 21 and verse 23... They meet him at the temple as he enters the temple courts. We assume here in the morning, while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? The context, of course, in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, we go back there. Jesus had entered the temple the day before on Monday and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Who, Jesus, do you think you are? The religious authorities confront him at the temple. This is our place, not yours. Now Jesus calculates rightly here that this is not the time to look them in the eye and say, I'm God and this is my house. And so in verse 27, we notice that he does not answer them by what authority he does these things. But what he does do is he, in characteristic form, turns to parables. Three parables. All of them addressed directly against the religious leaders of Israel. The two sons, the tenants of the vineyard, the wedding banquet. In all of these parables, they are the enemy. And Jesus brings out the idea that they are guilty of rebellion against God. They are mad. They mount now at this point an all-out intellectual attack against Jesus, hoping to hang him with his own words and thus to discredit him before the adoring crowds. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, they ask first of all, chapter 21, verse 15 and following. These are not all in this day, but these are questions that are brought to him, challenging him. Paying taxes to Caesar, a political question from the Pharisees and the Herodians. A lot of fun to try to please those two at the same time on a question about taxes. Marriage and the resurrection, the Sadducees bring before him, those who deny the resurrection. A third challenge comes in the form of an interpretive question regarding the law of God. I set up all of this context to say that Jesus' words here need to be seen in an environment of tremendous hostility. These are the last-ditch intellectual efforts to hang Jesus. These efforts will become physical, and already that is brewing. But in this context, Jesus is questioned, verse 34, and we'll look first of all at the questioner. Verse 34, if you'll turn to Matthew 22. In verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that was on their question about marriage and seeking to deny the resurrection. Having heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So the picture that we have here is in the temple courtyard. Word circulates that the Sadducees have fallen flat on their face before the wisdom of Christ concerning the resurrection of the dead. And we might expect the Pharisees to be jumping up and down with glee. But Jesus turned to the Old Testament scriptures and he found their proof of the resurrection they had never seen. And their hatred for Jesus is so intense, they would have been quite happy if their enemies had defeated him. If the Sadducees had defeated him, they could go back to their old fight with the Sadducees. But this Jesus they could not abide. What can we do with him? The Sadducees have failed. And so we have a picture of the Pharisees all gathered around here thinking of a question that can put Jesus in tough spot. Now, along with them, there is somewhere in this context, verse 35, one of them, an expert of the law, who tested him with this question. Let me stop for just a moment before we look at his question. He's an expert in the law, or literally just a a lawyer. But he was an expert in the law of Moses, and in that context, a highly respected teacher in Israel. Now Mark's account paints this man in a much more positive light, and I think it's faithful to bring that thought in here. We don't want to picture him individually as particularly hostile. But I think that verses 34 and 35 do go together. 
And as Matthew unfolds the story, he's seeking to present to us these waves of opposition, these intellectual challenges. But 34 and 35 go together, and perhaps bringing Mark's account in, they go together something like this. The Pharisees are gathered together, hoping to challenge Christ, hoping to hang him, and they may select here one of their wisest teachers and give him a question to ask Jesus. As this man is standing there before Jesus, and he sees Jesus silence the Sadducees, as he sees Jesus answering with wisdom, we don't know all of the context, but in some way he is impressed with Christ, and he asks a legitimate question, and Jesus gives him a legitimate answer. He tests Jesus. Don't read that as he tempts him. But the word should be taken here, not with sinister intent, but rather he hopes to challenge Jesus and to test his mettle as a student of Scripture. Here's the question, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now again, the context helps us here. The rabbis of Israel habitually argued this very point. They habitually argued over the specific commands of God in the Mosaic Law, and they had turned this into a life Quest. The rabbis of Israel believed that there were 613 divine commandments in the law, basically Exodus through Deuteronomy. One commandment, they were pleased to note, for every letter in the Ten Commandments. They didn't just look at the words of Scripture, they looked at the letters of Scripture and they counted them and they knew them forwards and backwards and can recite all of them to you. They knew that there were 613 commands, the same number of letters in the Ten Commandments. And I would venture there's nobody here that ever tried that or thought about that idea and counted all the letters in the Ten Commandments. But they did. This was their life. And they were revered in Israel for it. Not only that, they could tell you that there were 248 positive commands and 365 negative commands. Now, if you're catching on here, that 365 will work for you. But 248 was how many members are in the body. 365, you've guessed already, is one negative command for every day in the year. They had this inside and out, and along with all of this scrupulosity, they would consider which commands were weightier and which were lighter, which were greater and which were lesser. Some were small, some were large, and they argued this point over and over and over again with one another. Deuteronomy 22.6, for instance, was usually made the list as the least significant command. It says if you find a mother bird sitting on a nest, you can take the eggs if you're hungry, but you can't kill the bird, or the young for that matter, but you can't kill the mother bird. That would be an example of a lighter command. The weightier command, there was much debate. So with what Farrar calls torturous scrupulosity, these rabbis specialized in hair-splitting arguments about how to categorize the various commands of God. Now what he's asking here, this hotly debated question, has great potential then to polarize Jesus' listeners. Yet as far as he is concerned, the lawyer is genuinely interested to know what Jesus thinks on the matter, as we should be. We might think Jesus would say, listen, every command of God comes from the mouth of God, and every command of God is therefore equally important. How does he respond, however? Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, Jesus agrees that there are divine commands which are more important than others. 
Specifically here, he selects Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, which is part of the Shema, the basic creed of Judaism. This passage in Deuteronomy is still read at the opening of the synagogue services in Israel. It was the first passage a Jewish child would commit to memory. And it was recited every day, two times, by the Jews. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Isn't it interesting? When the Sadducees come to Jesus, he pulls out a thought from the Old Testament that I guarantee no one on the face of the earth ever thought of before. And when this lawyer comes to him with this challenge, Jesus pulls out an idea that every single Jew in Israel that very day had thought about and missed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Many commentators attempt to treat these words separately and to develop these long discussions about their differences. I don't think that's necessary. In fact, I think it misses the point. These three words are essentially synonymous. There's times when they're not used synonymously, but I don't think that's the case here. They are repetitive, intending to emphasize the point. We are not to think, well, let's see, I really love God with all my heart today, but I failed to love him with my mind, and I'm not really sure where my soul's landed in this whole equation today. That, I mean, it kind of sounds silly, doesn't it? Your mind, your soul, your heart, it's you. Like, for instance, if a teacher said, I want you, class, to think, to use your minds, to exercise your brains, to think hard now in this class. A teacher's not saying divide all those out into three separate things and do all three. It's just saying think. And Jesus is just saying here, God is saying love with all of your faculties. Love with wholehearted love. No reservation, no compromise. This is the great commandment. And verse 38, he says that this is the first and greatest commandment. The first not in time, but in importance. It's synonymous there with greatest. First and greatest. It's the same thing. He's again just emphasizing that this is the ultimate command. As Brown observes, Jesus gives his explicit sanction to the distinction between commandments of a more fundamental and primary character and commandments of a more dependent and subordinate nature. Well, let's think about this. The Pharisees, almost to a man, would claim to love God with all their heart. That's why they went through all of the exercises that they went through every day. Well, we love God with all of our heart. Jesus wisely couples to this great command a companion commandment, verse 39. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Here Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18. How, questions the Apostle John, can you say that you love God and not love one another? Whoever loves God and is God's child loves God's children. And we find that teaching of John really just displayed here in what Jesus is saying. The second command is like it. It's coupled to it. It's organic with it. You love God with all of your heart, and that translates into walking shoes. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love to man, writes Morrison, naturally interblends with love to God. The duties interpenetrate at innumerable points. 
We are to love our neighbor as ourself. We've talked about this phrase in past weeks, but let me just say very briefly here, this is not a third command as psychologist Eric Fromm first suggested, and so many believers have followed this pagan to this day. This is not a third command. Love yourself first, then you can love others. That is not the case. Self-love is assumed to reside in each of us naturally. It is not a prerequisite achievement after which we can love others. It is the inborn natural guide by which we gauge and shape our love for others. What does it mean to love others as I love myself? Let's go back to Matthew 7, 12. And notice here the direct connection between these two passages. What does it mean to love my neighbor as I love myself? Matthew 7 and verse 12. So in everything, Jesus is saying, do to others what you would have them do to you. Notice the phrase here. Isn't this interesting? For this sums up the law and the prophets. Same thing he's saying in Matthew 22. This is the summation of the law. Do to others what you would want them to do to you given the same circumstances. Notice verse 40 then, which ties directly to Matthew 7.12. Verse 40 of Matthew 22, he says, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Or literally, hang in these two commandments. All the commands of God's law hang inside the circle of these two commandments. Everything God has hung in the Old Testament is in these commandments. Everything which Jesus came to fulfill, everything that He came to produce through the Spirit in our hearts as His followers, all of it is encompassed by these commands. Love the Lord with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think the idea here is that all of the Old Testament can be derived logically from these commands. I don't think that the Old Testament is all reducible to these commands, but I think the idea is that every command of God rests upon these two commands, is held together by them. There are more commands than to love your neighbor as yourself. But loving your neighbor as yourself binds all of those commands and holds them in a certain position. These commands are, as Morrison again puts it, the underlying ethical aim of all of God's commands. Let's turn to Romans and compare this in the epistles. Romans 13, just by way of cross-reference. Romans 13 and verse 8. Romans 13. We'll notice here that Paul is laying out commands for the Christian ethic. Here's what we are to do. Watch how at a certain place he just kind of says, i got to get moving here, I've got things to do, and he just summarizes all of a sudden. But notice, verse 8, watch how this develops. Romans 13, verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. He kind of just states his case right at the front. Now watch, he says the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. There's all these laws, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. He could have said many other laws there, but he says they are summed up In this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. So this teaching of Jesus permeates the New Testament. 
We are to love God with all of our soul, and we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is the weightiest commandment. These two together. Now I'd like us to stop here and to consider this command to love. I'd like to just offer some comments on it that I hope will be helpful to us as we seek to apply this to our Christian walk. First of all, love is not an option. It is a command. We need to get that straight in our minds. Love is not an option. It is a command. God does not suggest that we love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. He does not suggest we try to love our neighbor as ourselves if we feel like it. He commands that we love. You must love. You must love God with all your heart and soul and mind. You must love others as you love yourself. We don't, do we? We don't, but every excuse must be eliminated and every alternative option despised. This is a command, not a suggestion. And without love, as Paul, as we studied in Paul the last few weeks, we are nothing. We're nothing. We've missed the weightier command of God's will. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Secondly, love is not an achievement It is an endowment. It's not an achievement. It is an endowment. Now, I might say it this way. Love is less an achievement and more an endowment. I don't want us to get the idea that we have nothing to do in this, but follow me. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. All I need to do is read that list and say love is an endowment, not an achievement. I could give the rest of my life trying to be patient and missing all the others and having a real difficult time with just the patience part, let alone all these other commands. Love does to others what we would want them to do to us, but we do not find that that comes naturally. Oh, here's the great news. We do not have within us this love, but we are capable by His grace of receiving this love as an endowment from Him. Romans 5.5, listen, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. The Father pours out the Spirit into our lives, and what does the Spirit do in our hearts? The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's an endowment, ultimately. 1 John 4, 7, love comes from God, John says. He says it so simply. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In order for us to love as God calls us to love, we must be born again. 
We must be born from above. There must be an outpouring of the Spirit of God into our hearts by the Father, or we will never love as He calls us to love. We must experience a regeneration and a work of the Spirit. Now, we need to be cautious here. We must not reduce this love to some mystical experience. We sit on our legs, uh, cross-legged, with cross arms, and we sit in some corner on our head waiting for the feeling to come over us. That God pours this love into our heart, and I feel this love filling me and coming in. That is not the direction that God's Word takes us. So let me add this third point. Love is a command. Love is an endowment. Thirdly, love is not a mystical experience. It is an ethic. It's not a mystical experience. It is an ethic. To love God with all your heart is something you will not always do because you are a sinner. That does not mean that it is something you cannot do. And if you say, now wait a minute, let me share the circumstances with you, the challenge that I have on my plate to love someone as I love myself, you're thinking in the wrong direction. It's an endowment. But it's an endowment that we accomplish. It's an ethic. It's not some mystical experience. God never commands us to do something we cannot do. If He commands it, He will provide the power to do it. The issue is not really, can we love God with all our hearts? The issue is, do we really want to? That's just an honesty line for Dan Miller as he writes out these thoughts. That's really what's at the heart of it. It's not, can I? It's, do I want to? If we want to love God, the evidence is not an elusive, mystical experience. The evidence is obedience. Our actions are the true test of what we want, and what we want reveals what we love. So if you truly want to love God, you will show your desire by obeying Him. And God counsels us on this matter time after time after time in His Word. Don't get the idea that love is some mystical experience. It's a matter of walking in obedience to God. Now, obviously, obedience can be lived out in a hypocritical manner. There's more to it than that. But genuine love fulfills what I want, and what I want reveals what I love. And so it shows itself in obedience. Let me take you on a short journey through a few passages, if you'll bear with me on this. I think it's very vital. Deuteronomy 10. Obedience is what, look, is what love looks like in walking shoes. Obedience. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Now, when all of these I take as 
synonymous phrases, really, ultimately. Because remember, Jesus says the summation of the law is to love the Lord your God. So does love for God just kind of get slipped in there among all of these other things? I think he's really just saying all one thing. Fear God. Love God. Do what you're supposed to do. Uh, All of these ideas serve him and the like. But notice that all of this love for God, this ethical requirement, shows itself, verse 13, by observing the Lord's commands and decrees. I love God by doing what He asks me to do. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30. And verse 16. Deuteronomy 30, 16. For I command you today to love the Lord your God. Here's the synonymous phrase, the parallel phrase, to walk in His ways and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. Joshua 22 and verse 5. Joshua 22 and verse 5. Joshua summons the people and says, 22.5, as he is nearing his death, but be very careful to keep the commandment of, and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, and to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. <coughs> you see again the connection. Love him. Is to love him is to obey him. 1 Samuel 15, 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel replies, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In the context of Saul's disobedience, but we notice there again here the weightier command to love. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Let's move forward to the teaching of Jesus. John 14. We find this in other places. We find this here in the teaching of Christ. John 14. And verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 John 2 and verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Obedience completes love. It is love to God. Chapter 5 and verse 3 of 1 John. Chapter 5 and verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands. Now we need to be cautious of self-deception here, of course. And here's the self-deception I'd like to address. I want to love God with all my heart. I want to love others as myself, but I just cannot do it. 
The truth of the matter is, I want that I do what I want to do. I do what I want to do, and I want what I love. If you are a child of God, then failing to love God and others is never a matter of incapacity. It is always a matter of idolatry. Never a matter of incapacity. It's a matter of idolatry. Remember Isaiah 1.16? Stop doing wrong. 1 Samuel 15.22, to obey is better than to sacrifice. So how do I wean myself from the idolatry of self and idolatrous interests? Well, let me say first of all that I don't think there's any rocket science involved in this either. A lot of people would like to hear the key, the secret, the thing nobody's ever heard before. How do I love God? How do I wean myself? I, I want to start us there. It's not that I can't. It's that I won't. It's not incapacity. It's idolatry. So how do I wean myself away from idols? Quit bowing down before them. Quit listening to their dictates. Stop being enamored with them. Quit paying attention to them. There's no easy answer, but let me just say, first of all, I would, I would certainly say that it would be wise for us to ask God. Love is an endowment. Let's ask him to give it to us. Now, don't take that in the wrong way. I've stressed this point that obedience is the issue, but it is an endowment from him. We need to pray. I wonder if we as God's people will ever realize how important prayer is to our spiritual maturity. How much love is lacking in our hearts because we do not ask God for it? He is the one who has poured it into our hearts. He is the one who can fan it into flame. We need to ask him to do so. And we need to ask him to do so for one another. One of the greatest ways that you can love another believer is to pray that God will transform them and sanctify them. We don't come together here on Wednesday night. I certainly hope that you don't come here on Wednesday night for prayer, those of you that are part of our prayer meetings, and you're here simply because you've got to be here while the kids are here. We're here and we are praying for one another by name, asking God to produce love in our hearts. We're praying together in agreement before our Father, as he has called us to, that we would be sanctified by his grace. It's one example. We need to be praying and asking God to produce love in one another's hearts. My prayers for you on a daily basis invariably begin with this prayer. God, that our love would abound 
yet more and more in knowledge and all insight. We must pray. We must secondly saturate ourselves with the truth of our God. Love for God is organically connected to knowing Him. Why do we attend church on Sundays? Why do you attend this church? Why are you here today? You should not be here out of ritual and habit. You should not be here because it feels good. You should not be here for your children's sake. That's part of it, but that's a smaller issue. You should be here because you want to love God and you want to love His people. You should be here because you want to love God with all your heart and hearing God's Word unfolded teaches us who God is and reminds us what obedience looks like. Some of you I know miss this, and that's, that's maybe okay. I'll leave that between you and God. But this service this morning was not thrown together. It was not picked out five minutes before the service. It was not organized in order to just do something and sing some songs. It was put together so that we would think about the love of God. That we would sing songs about His grace. That something would happen in our heart, in our soul, that would picture God as beautiful and would connect here. And would lead into the teaching of God's Word with the purpose that we as God's people would love Him more. Now there's no easy, simple way in all of this, but we must think the thoughts of God. We must consider who He is. We must come to understand Him, and as we come to understand Him, we love Him. That's happened in your life with some human person somewhere. Somebody you have come to learn and come to know over the years, and the more that you know them, the more you love them. Because you've come to understand them. Multiply that infinitely. And that is the relationship that we should have with God. To know His Word and to be in His presence is to love Him. We can't love Him when we're bowing down before idols and we're wasting our time worshiping and licking the feet of idols. One more. Bear with me just a little longer. And that is this, and it's so vital. Love is not a burden. It is a joy. Why does God command us to love Him with all our hearts? Because He loves us with all of His heart. When, when God says... Love me with all of your heart. That is his love to you. What kind of love does he have? We know of it. Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's His love to us. 
And so when he commands us to do anything, it is an expression of that infinite, boundless, never-ending love. And what does this God say? Love me with all of your heart. That is your salvation. That is your hope. That is your joy. That is your satisfaction. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is your great reward. It is the height of danger to do anything else than to love God with all of our hearts. If you are doing anything, if you are participating in anything, if you are giving your affections to anything other than God in an idolatrous way, that is the most dangerous thing you can do. All that our loving Father commands us in His Word hangs on this command, these commands to love Him and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this is our life. It is our joy. It is our hope. Remember Deuteronomy 30? For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. For what? Then you will live. Then you will increase, and the Lord, your God, will bless you. The command to love God, the command to love one another, are the weightiest of all of God's commands. And those commands are an expression of His love to us. Let's go before his throne in prayer. I ask you, dear God, for a unique endowment of love in my own heart and in the heart of these people that you will produce that love in us, that we will see it not as a burden, that we will see it for what it is, a great joy and a gift. But Lord, as I come before you in prayer, I think it would be absolutely foolish not to lay before you our sins and to confess that we do not love you with all of our heart, that we are those who battle with idolatry, But yet, Lord, in another sense, we do love you with all of our heart. And we thank you that you've put this love in us and that you fan it into flame. And I pray, dear God, that we would set aside those things that deaden us to the love of God, that we would set aside our idols. Lord, that we would think your truth after you and grow in your presence to love you with all of our heart. Lord, will you produce this love in us, that we would walk in obedience by loving one another and knowing the joy of loving you. If there is one among us who knows you not as Savior, dear Father, I pray with all of my heart that you will show them the cross of Christ. Show that individual the work that Jesus has done on the cross and draw that one to yourself and open their eyes to your truth, I pray. 
for those of us who know you as Savior, Lord, we put our hands over our mouth and we stop in awe, realizing our failures, but realizing also our great reward is you. Thank you. Thank you, our loving Father, for commanding us for our good. We praise you for this. We thank you in the name of our Savior and pray, dear God, that our love would abound. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.